Welcome to the final edition of It's what? All Politics from NPR News. I'm Ron Elvin. And I'm Ken Rudin, Ron. And on this very sad day, I think we should spend basically the next 45 minutes talking about the royal baby. I think the royal baby is us. The royal baby is really our kind of story. We've been first really in royal coverage back over the entire seven years we've been doing this podcast. That's true. And I love the name they gave him, Carlos Danger. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I thought that would be perfect. To me, that sounds like a king. (laughs) It does. Or at least a mayor. And while we're on that subject. Do you have any final thoughts on the Wiener candidacy? You know something, this is fascinating because, you know, first of all, he had this scandal and his wife stood by him and then he withdrew. I I must have missed all that. Was there an earlier episode of some of this text? That's exactly it. And then he resigned from Congress in 2011. Oh, he actually did leave Congress over this sexting scandal. And then we saw People magazine. It's it's it's, It's a new Wiener, as we've always said. You know, and we tastefully laid off this back in 2011. We didn't mention it at all, I mean, after the third or fourth month <laughs> uh, of that particular scandal. And now, of course, it's back, and we're forced to. We're forced to. We're actually having our faces forced back into this story. Well, it's uh, something that people are very fascinated with because it's about human frailty. And the best part of this story is the good wife, the loyal wife, the woman who is standing up for her husband, a woman who is... Well, perhaps as ambitious as her husband and clearly wants him to tough it out and run for mayor despite being a laughingstock on this and all the other continents. We discussed all of this before Anthony decided he would run for mayor. So really what I want to say is I love him. I have forgiven him. I believe in him. And as we have said from the beginning, we are moving forward. You know, the obvious comment we should make on the podcast she doesn't have a true sense of humor. Huh? What? I'm, I'm, I'm what? without breath because I knew there would be a moment when you brought in our favorite city in Arizona, but I just Huma? didn't think you'd get it in quite so soon. But Huma Abedin stood there. Look, she stood there once before, and she perhaps was the guiding force behind the, the Wiener candidacy saying, look, if I forgive him, then the voters should forgive him. Although he did say there may be more information coming out, but we didn't know that after he resigned from Congress, information. the sexting was still going on. I have said that other texts and photos were likely to come out. And today they have. As I've said in the past, these things that I did were wrong and hurtful to my wife and caused us to go through many challenges in our marriage that extended past my resignation from Congress. How did he know? How did he know? He is a seer, this man. But in fairness to him, he never knew the word was pronounced election. Is this this on? Come on, somebody's going to cancel the podcast. Come Come on, I say we leave it. Well, look, we shouldn't presume, although we presume everything on the podcast, but we should not presume the state of Anthony Weiner and Huma Abedin's marriage. Hey, let's assume that it's a great marriage. Well, it doesn't matter. It's and they're willing to let the entire city of New York in on it. Perhaps it's their private life, but somehow when you're running for mayor of New York, given all the tabloids, and of course you know the Daily News, in addition to the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, all said, do what you have to do, but don't do this as a candidate for mayor. You should drop out of the race immediately. But he's not doing that. No, he's not doing that. He's staying in the race. And uh, the Quinnipiac poll that came out this week, of course, shows that Anthony Weiner is still with a slight lead over Christine Quinn, the Speaker of the City Council, and former city controller uh, Bill Thompson, who narrowly lost to Mayor Bloomberg four years ago. But um, the thing is, if you think of what he was as a congressman, I mean, for all the years he was in Congress, he never had a, a meaningful record. He went before the microphones. He was very snarky and amused 
using on cable television, but he really wasn't a guy of substance. I just don't think that there's any viability here except in notoriety and in strength of personality. And perhaps, you know, from the standpoint of Christine Quinn, she's better off having him remain as a candidate and continue to break up the vote against her so that she can prevail as the one-woman candidate against a broken field. Well, except, of course, New York City has a runoff, and uh, the latest polls seem to show, I mean, we're going to get away from Anthony Weiner for a second, but Bill Thompson, African-American, former controller, uh, who was sort of as as also ran in this race, now seems to be moving up in the polls, and some surveys indicate that he could actually win a runoff, certainly against Weiner, but also against Christine Quinn. There is topsy-turvy to this whole race. Absolutely, and let's also note that on the other coast, there was another mayor this week whose problems in the same general category of personal behavior towards women also worsened this week. Well, I disagree with that description because unlike Anthony Weiner, who was out for his own ego and self-satisfaction, unlike Elliot Spitzer, who was visiting prostitutes, Bob Filner, the mayor of San Diego, was physically abusing women. He was saying suggestive things. He was harassing them at work. And then now the the former communications director of Bob Filner came out and actually made an accusation, a complaint against uh, the mayor Filner and the city of San Diego for what he's done. It's one thing to talk about, you know, sexting and all that stuff. But this is this is. I mean, you talk about crime. war on women. This is, seems worse than anything else. So I know we shouldn't be trying the man before it goes before any kind of judicial process, but it seems like what Filner has done is beyond the pale. Okay. That does take care of our mayors in trouble category. Let's move on to governors. We do have the governor of Virginia, the current governor of Virginia, soon to be out of office. Right, he's he's term limited. He's term limited. And also he's got a lot of other problems, including all of these connections to a particular fundraiser, to a particular businessman who seems to have enjoyed certain favors from the state while providing all kinds of favors to the McDonald family. And the governor this week apologized for that. Yeah, his actual words were E-I-E-I-O. Thank you. Thank you, Governor McDonald. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know something? I mean, look, McDonald's not running again. But once upon a time, he was talked about, first of all, as a Romney running mate in 2012. Kind of amazing. Uh, a, perhaps a, a presidential candidate in 2016. Even, even a, more amazing. Even a challenger to Senator Mark Warner in 2014. But I don't know where McDonald goes from here. I mean, basically, even Cuccinelli, the, Ken Cuccinelli, the Republican candidate for governor, has said that perhaps maybe McDonald should consider resigning. Uh, it seems like that the once limitless future for Bob McDonald has come to a sudden end. And as we're moving up the uh, food chain here, we, we certainly cannot have our final podcast without talking one more time about Barack Obama. Certainly the time of this podcast, beginning in 2006, when he was a United States senator and thinking about running for president, to the present day, has spanned the Obama era in American politics. Where does he stand in his presidency now, six months into his second term? Well, the numbers are not great, but of course they're far greater than Republican numbers, and maybe that's his saving grace. But I thought he had a very signature moment in the past week uh, following the Trayvon Martin slash George Zimmerman trial verdict. Obama seems to have been, from the beginning, seemed to be very reticent to talk about race. He either gave it to uh, Eric Holder, his attorney general, to talk about it. But he was always never an African-American president. He was a president who happened to be African-American. And he always just seemed, even with the beer summit, he really wasn't talking from the heart. In the post-Zimmerman verdict, it seemed like Obama was really, for the first time, letting us know 
what kind of life experiences he had as a black man. And I think people were hearing that for the first time. It was the most personal discussion of race we've heard from him, I would think, at least uh, since March of 2008, when he made the speech about his own background that followed on the Jeremiah Wright controversy that seemed to be about to derail his candidacy there for a few days in February and March of 2008. Of course, in the long run, it seems to have helped him. It helped him bridge the racial gap, motivate the vote of uh, people of color of all kinds in 2008 and 2012, while at the same time remaining acceptable to at least enough of the white or the Anglo vote so that he could be elected twice as president. With polls coming out, there was a great disparity between whites and blacks on the verdict in Florida. The president obviously felt the need to come in and express his feelings. There are very few African-American men in this country who haven't had the experience of being followed when they were shopping in a department store. That includes me. There are very, very few African-American men who haven't had the experience of walking across the street and hearing uh, the locks click on the doors of cars. That happens to me, at least before I was a senator. There are very few African-Americans who haven't had the experience of getting on an elevator and a woman clutching her purse uh, nervously uh, and holding her breath until she had a chance to get off. That happens often. And I I don't want to exaggerate this, but those sets of experiences inform how the African-American community interprets uh, what happened uh, one night in Florida. You know, it it wasn't an I have a dream speech, certainly, but it was an I have a heart speech. And I think that we heard from Obama how his heart reacted and was reacting throughout this whole trial. You know, there was probably a moment in 2008 and and early in 2009 when people could actually use this phrase post-racial United States or post-racial America. And we could think for a moment that the election of Barack Obama was going to mean that in some sense or another, race was going to matter a little less in American life and in American politics. That was probably always naive. Maybe the president would have been the first to say so. But he has always tried to define himself as somebody who was going to transcend racial identity and be a president insofar as he could be accepted as a president for all the people. And that has been the great struggle, the great undermining, underlying struggle of the Obama presidency. Well, the election of an African-American president, as historic as, of course, it was, is not going to change centuries, if not just decades, of personal viewpoints. And I don't know what comes out of this. I don't know what comes out of Obama's remarks. There's not going to be a national dialogue of race. There's not going to be some kind of initiatives coming out of the White House. But hopefully, for everybody's sake, I hope that people heard what he had to say and maybe some laws get changed. Maybe some people look at people differently. But whatever it was, I thought it was one of the key moments of his presidency. A few days later, the president uh, embarked upon a new series of speeches about economic policy, not so much with a lot of specific programmatic policy ideas, but in at least his first speeches, thematic approaches to how we should be thinking about the economy. This phrase, building the economy from the middle out as an alternative to trickle-down economics, uh, talking much like the candidate that he was five or six years ago when he was first running for president, and sounding a lot of themes that really did sound like stump speech. So in many ways, the trends that I spoke about here in 2005, eight years ago, 
the trend of a winner-take-all economy where a few are doing better and better and better while everybody else just treads water, those trends have been made worse by the recession. But the thing is, here it is 2013, and he's still sounding like a candidate, uh, which is interesting because after four-plus years of his presidency, this is his economy. Now, I always think of Ronald Reagan always sounding like he was running against Washington, even though he was president for eight years. But Obama sounded a little bit like that, too. And I kind of think that at some point, he and the Democrats are going to have to take the blame or the credit for the state of the economy. It's interesting that he should run against Washington at this particular moment in time. There are House Republicans. They're essentially talking points memo for August when they go home on recess this summer, which has, of course, been leaked to the media, uh, tells them that they should run against Washington. They should come out against everything that's going on in Washington and constantly using this term Washington as though we all agreed we hated it. And maybe we all do, especially those of us who live here. But the point is that these are the people who are running Washington, the Democrats on one hand, the Republicans in the House with their majority very much setting the agenda or limiting the agenda for whatever the uh, the rest of Congress might want to do. And everyone wants to run against the general product, the, if you will, accumulated product of each other. You know, another reason I feel sad that this is the last podcast is that we won't see what transpires after this time, after the Obama speech, after the Republican talking points, after all this. But clearly we do know that when House Republicans go back to home on their August recess, they're going to hear about things like the immigration bill. They're going to hear about the amnesty that the Democrats are proposing. And so Look, the only reason we talk about politics so much is obviously we love it and we obviously have some kind of a sense that good can come out of it. But I just wonder in this extremely polarized bit uh, between the House Republicans, Senate Democrats and the White House, if anything is going to come out of anything. And if, you know, we always heard about the, the lessons of 2012 that we've got to come together on. Who knows, in six months from now, the, the, the conversation or whoever's having this conversation uh, will be talking about the same lack of progress. But one thing we know we will have going forward. What's that? More elections. We will have elections for the House and Senate in 2014. We will have elections for president. We will have primaries and one election for president in 2016. Are they going to have it without us? I hate to think so. Wow. But I'm afraid so. So what kind of results do we see in 2014? What are the races that you think are going to be most important? Well, in obviously, in the, in the battle for the Senate in 2014, Republicans need a net gain. Actually, they need a net footicello. All the jokes that I've been saving are You coming. haven't been saving them, though. You, you've, uh, been, you've been investing them with us. Yes, but Kathy and Bracton have been taking them out every week. That's right, and they I, will take them out again this okay. week. I have every conference. Okay, well, the, net, the, the Republicans need a net gain of six seats. I think they do pick up three in West Virginia with Jay Rockefeller is retiring in South Dakota, where Tim Johnson is retiring, and in, in, in Montana, where Max Baucus is retiring. We don't know who the Republican candidate is in Montana. Or who yet. the Democrats might come up but with. But we do know that Brian Schweitzer. Thank you. That we know that Albert Schweitzer uh, has decided not to run. That is sad because yeah. I've always felt that we needed an iconic figure who had been a missionary and a physician in Africa. Right. So there's three states right there. Um, now there are four competitive states left. Uh, Democratic seats, Alaska, uh, Arkansas, Louisiana, and North Carolina. Republicans obviously need to win three of those, but that's tough. All four voted for Romney. These are big Romney states. Uh, Tom Cotton has a good shot against Mark Pryor in Arkansas, but interestingly enough, 
Six years ago, Mark Pryor went unopposed. But that was 2008, an excellent year to be a Democrat in just about every part of the country, a good year at least not to be a Republican in just about any part of the country. So Mark Pryor got kind of a free pass. Somewhat the same could be said for some of these other Democrats who would have had a much tougher time in 2008 had it not been for the general political context of that year. Well, Mark Beggage in Alaska probably won because Ted Stevens had been convicted on corruption charges. So, you know, he may face tough opposition in 2014, but the Republicans can't agree on a candidate. You have the Lieutenant Governor Meade Treadwell, you have Joe Miller, the guy who beat Lisa Murkowski and then lost to a write-in, and then possibly Sarah Palin. I don't think she runs. Not. But the point is the Republicans don't have a united figure against Mark Begich in Alaska. That's right. So, So there are a lot of opportunities there, and if, as we say, they run the table, they could be the majority party in the Senate, which would make Mitch McConnell the majority leader at long last in his very, very long career in the Senate back to 1984, Mitch McConnell would finally be the majority leader if he can just get reelected. Isn't that something? I mean, we talked about Mitch McConnell. The goal he's wanted from day one was to be the majority leader of the U.S. Senate. And we thought he had a shot in 2012. Nobody thought the Democrats would pick up seats. And he certainly had the numbers in 2014, 21 Democratic seats up compared to 14 Republican seats. So, I mean, the numbers at least he has, but he now has what he always feared, a Tea Party challenge, and that's what he's got. Yes, he has a primary opponent in Matt Bevan, a wealthy businessman who is going to get a certain amount of support just from people who don't like Mitch McConnell, and he has the poorest numbers, by the way, of any senator running for re-election in 2014. And he's never been wildly popular at home. He often wins by just a few points. That's right. So if he has to run to his right until he gets the nomination, that might, in some sense, make him more vulnerable for the fall when he does have... Allison Lundergan Grimes, who is the Secretary of State and uh, a popular figure elected with over 60% of the vote. What's fascinating about this race is what does Rand Paul do? Rand Paul beat Mitch McConnell's choice when Rand Paul was elected to the Senate. But Rand Paul, if he's thinking of running for president in 2016, does he back the establishment of Mitch McConnell, who's a pro-amnesty, no. according to the Tea Party? No. He's got a real dilemma he here. And uh, we'll be watching to see whether or not he has the sort of presidential chops it takes to deal with that kind of dilemma. It's a real politician's problem. And we're waiting to see whether or not Rand Paul is going to turn out to be a real politician in the sense that his father never really was a conventional politician. Probably the only other Republican Senate seat worth paying attention to is the one in Georgia. That's the one where Saxby Chambliss is retiring after a couple of terms. Now, the Democrats say they have the right candidate to win that seat. That's Michelle Nunn. Oh, Nunn? Right. As in N-U-N-N? Right. As in Sam Nunn, the multi-term, still iconic, still revered former senator from Georgia? I thought she was the flying nun. Is that a different nun? This is a different nun. But it is a problem with this. I mean, everybody's this talking about... This is the running nun. Well, <laughs> right. But Sam Nunn hasn't been on a ballot since 1990. I don't know how many people really remember Sam Nunn. No, but he still has that aura in the state. Even people who never voted for him, even people who don't really remember him, even people who couldn't pick him out in a lineup still think that he is some kind of important guy. Well, you know, um, we always vote none of the above. But here's the thing, though. The Republicans have a multi-candidate primary that could destroy their chances. There are three members of Congress. There's a former Secretary of State. A businessman just got in the race this week who's a cousin of Sonny Perdue, the former governor. But if a very strong right-wing Republican, this is the Democratic dream, if a real right-wing Republican like Paul Brown or Phil Gingrey Gingrey, uh, wins the nomination, the Democrats theoretically think they have a chance with Michelle Nunn. So I think they're higher on Michelle Nunn than I personally would be. But again, you can never 
underestimate how the Republicans can hurt themselves, as we saw with Richard Murdoch in Indiana and Todd Aiken in Missouri in 2012. And speaking of female candidates with famous fathers, what's going on in Wyoming? Does Liz Cheney still want to be in the United States Senate? And despite the first poll, which made her look pretty bad? It sounds like she made a a terrible mistake. Seems like everybody in the establishment, all the Republican voters in Wyoming, which we call voters in Wyoming, uh, seem that, that, that Mike Enzi is a much more popular figure. He deserved their support. He's 69 years old. And Liz Cheney is trying to make the issue that as a 46-year-old, I'm the new generation of leadership. But there's no argument to, to, to turn out Mike Enzi. And, and it seems like every Republican in the state seems to be backing Enzi. Now, of course, as you pointed out, Ron, in the last podcast, well, maybe what Liz Cheney is trying to do is to get him to get out of the race. If he does, there's always the specter of Cynthia Lummis, the at-large House member who is also beating Liz Cheney in these hypothetical polls. That's correct. And as we complete our last podcast, we are going to be asking, is there any chance that the House of Representatives could be in play next year, contradicting what everyone more or less assumes, given the uh, districts that were drawn after the 2010 census. Most people think the Republicans are installed for the decade, but there are polls out there, and granted, most of them are coming from Democrats, people like James Carville and Stan Greenberg, who say the numbers are there for the Democrats to pull an upset next year and get back into control of the House, make Nancy Pelosi speaker one more time. And what they're relying on here is largely the unpopularity of the Republican brand. Just this week, the Washington Post had a poll that showed most Republicans, just over 50 percent of Republicans, think their own party is getting too extreme or going in the wrong direction. But if we look at individual races, and that's what the battle for the House is all about, it seems like the Republicans still are in good shape, even if there was an anti-Republican tide in the sixth year of a Democratic presidency, which is unlikely. Very unlikely. Will the Democrats pick up 17 seats to take control? And I suspect no. As a matter of fact, most people feel that the Republicans will gain a couple of seats. We'll see what happens. But right now, I say the Republicans keep the House. But I also think the Democrats keep the Senate in 2014. All right. So we've beaten 2014 to death. What about 2016? Ken, does she run or doesn't she? Well, you're talking about Cynthia Lummis of Wyoming? That's my first and foremost There's question. no question uh, that... But right after we've answered that, let's talk about Hillary Clinton. Uh, Hillary Clinton absolutely runs for president in 2016. If we go through the transcripts of our podcast in 2007, I probably said I can't see Hillary Clinton losing the nomination. We probably agreed on that. We didn't agree. I think you're we wrong, We didn't agree. We don't, I think you're we misremembering. Okay. Well, anyway, I can't imagine uh, anyone, first of all, of, of consequence challenging her. I mean, like the Martin O'Malley's, the John Hickenlooper's, the the Andrew Cuomo's. That's not going to happen. Joe Biden. But Joe Biden, that's the question. He, he wa- might. He wants to be president in the worst way because I think he's been vice president in the in worst way. In the worst way, way. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and how about this for a wild card? Let's just posit for the moment that Joe Biden does run, and let's just posit for the moment that the huge guns that will be rolled out by the conservative media to blast her for Benghazi, to blast her for everything they can Which possibly is already imagine. Yeah. Yes. And let's imagine that those things actually do start to touch her up a little bit, and she is not as dominant in the polls as you and I would assume she would be at this point. Biden's making a little bit of a show of it. Isn't a third or a fourth candidate going to be attracted to that scenario? And let me throw out a name, Senator, not yet Senator, but will be Senator in 2016, Cory Booker of New Jersey. 
or Senator Elizabeth Warren. There's a lot of residual support for a Cory Booker candidacy, as well as Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren, we always talk about the recalcitrant Republicans who refuse to back down, you know, the Rand Pauls, the Ted Cruz's, the Mike Lee's. Elizabeth Warren is... A darling of the liberals. I know we love to say a darling of the we liberals. We love to say a darling. But she is a strong progressive and w- with a tremendous amount of support saying, you know, of course, she's not going to challenge Hillary Clinton for the nomination, no. clearly. No. But she is somebody that the true believers, if we talk about true believers on the Republican side, the Ted Cruz's, the Rand Paul's, the Mike Lee's, Elizabeth Warren appeals to the true believers on the left progressive side of the Democratic Party. So there are other people who might run. They're very unlikely to be uh, any rain on Hillary's parade in 2016, but we just don't know. We don't know what might be her weaknesses as a candidate. We don't know what might happen between now and then. But right now, we have a clearer idea of who the front runner is on the Democratic side by far than we do on the Republican. Uh, if you asked me to name the Republican frontrunner, I could not do it. I would have to say on one level. When you look at 08 and 12 and the fact that there was a large conservative field, but it was the most moderate person in that field who wound up with the nomination, you would have to say against that backdrop that we shouldn't dismiss Chris Christie, who will clearly be the best moderate candidate. He's clearly running. He's clearly interested. He wants to run in 2016. And all the polls show him to be the strongest Republican in November of 2016, but they don't show him getting the nomination. Well, that was kind of like the argument for Mitt Romney, even though he was not the strongest in November. Or maybe he was the strongest maybe he in November. Was. Do we think Rick Santorum would have beaten Obama in 2012? N- none, none, none of the above. The Herman Cain's, the Rick Perry's, the Michelle Bachman's, uh, absolutely not. The Newt Gingrich's, no. But, you know, we're going to see a lot of people like Rick Santorum. Uh, maybe Mike Huckabee gets back in again. Probably not. But we got this new generation. You've already named them. Rand Paul. Ted Cruz. Marco They're going Rubio. to be running. Well, no, Marco, Marco Rubio almost Mar- for certain. Will Marco run. Rubio is an interesting character because, uh, you know, when he was elected in 2010, the, the hero of the Tea Party movement, he stopped Charlie Crist in Florida, and then immigration uh, overhaul was going to catapult him to the lead because, because the Republicans needed a, a, a needed an in with Latino voters. Mm-mm. But he's become the establishment very, very quickly, and I wonder if he is strong enough to hold back this conservative tide that seems no shows no sign of ebbing as we approach 2016. I believe Amnesty has made him anathema to the very people who initially promoted him as a candidate in 2010. And now they're looking elsewhere. They're looking at Ted Cruz, who also has a Hispanic last name. Little problem, he was born in Canada, but he says he's worked that out. We'll have to see what kind of a wrinkle he's got there on the Constitution. Wouldn't it be funny if the Republicans stopped talking about birth certificates when Ted Cruz runs for president? I don't think they're going to want to see his because it's in Canadian. So did we mention Rand Paul? Rand Paul certainly wants it. And, of course, his, his relationship with Mitch McConnell will be very indicative of how he does with Tea Party folks. Let me go back to Chris Christie for a second. I don't see any way in the world he gets the nomination. Not in the Republican Party. No. I, first of all, I think his – I hate to use this. I'm not saying this as a joke, but his act will wear thin. He's a governor of an urban state, so he's obviously going to have more liberal, moderate views on guns and things like that. But I think that in this absolutist field of Republican voters, I think they're going to say Chris Christie is not the answer. It's hard to see him in Iowa. It's hard to see him doing well in New Hampshire. Uh, It's very hard to see him doing well in South Carolina. And as Rudy Giuliani showed us all a few years ago, it's very hard to start your campaign and be successful when the first state you're competitive in is Florida. Jeb Bush, once upon a time, was going to be the answer to all the Republican woes. Now, most people are telling me he probably won't run. Lovely segue out of my mentioning Florida. I do think that Jeb Bush is having serious, serious 
second thoughts about wanting to be the third President Bush. Yeah, but not only that, I think uh, every time he's given a speech or any kind of discussion, he's got very tepid reactions, uh, reviews. Uh, I'm convinced that maybe the party has passed him by. All right. All right. So we think it's going to be Hillary. Who do we think the Republicans are going to nominate in 2016? If I had to, had to, had to, had to, had to guess, I would say Cynthia Lummis. No. <laughs> we don't do enough Cynthia Lummis. Uh, um, I think if I had to, had to, had to, I'm going to say Marco Rubio. I would say Marco Rubio is still one of the top two candidates, but there's going to be someone else. There's going to be someone else who's going to enter this field. I don't think it's going to be Rick Perry. I don't think he runs. I don't think, you don't think be, he runs. I don't think he runs at all. I think there is one more besides Marco Rubio, and it's going to be one of the two boys from Wisconsin. Paul Ryan has been kind of ambivalent about whether he wants to make a national run. He was on the ticket last time. Not real clear how much it helped the ticket. He didn't even win his home state, didn't even win his home congressional district. So maybe Paul Ryan's moment in the sun has come and gone, but I don't I think I, that he's ready to let it go. I can't recall that other person from Wisconsin. The, I can't recall him. The other person Ron, is I can't recall. Scott Walker, yeah. the governor who was not recalled, oh. who will be reelected in 2014, That's maybe fairly like. easily. And he clearly has the bug, and he's crossing the Mississippi and Iowa and talking to people there. I suspect Scott Walker will be in this picture as well. I mean, he's no Tommy Thompson, but he's not even a Warren Knowles. Oh, Warren Knowles. Now, if, yeah. let me just say, for all those listening to the podcast in Wisconsin, <laughs> Warren Knowles is our idea of a silver-haired Republican icon. And for the three people in Wisconsin who remember Warren Knowles, we salute you. Ron, um, as we come to the close of the final, and, you know, close makes the man. The end come, of the era. Well, you know something? I've gone through many emails and tweets and stuff over the last week or two. And, and thank you to the hundreds and hundreds of people there have who been over sent thousand, these messages. There have been over a thousand letters that have come in from the listener. and now The listener was very busy this week. And let me just say... How amazing that the listener was able to make them sound so different. I had some tears, actually, going through all these emails this week. Um, there are a lot of people who mentioned their favorite moments in the podcast, but there is a, a listener out there who who will miss this as much as we will. And I know we will miss it, and uh, I won't get teary-eyed, but we do have a list of favorite moments. And I, ha you know what I've also done? I, I put together a whole bunch of emails from people around the world who just are really, really touched uh, by this. Um, for example, um, um, Mark Daniel, uh, who said, who'd been listening to the podcast for the last five years while he was living in China. Colin Martin Bodman of Cornwall, the United Kingdom, says, your even-handed irreverence for politicians from across the political spectrum, combined with insightful analysis and encyclopedic memories, have been just what I need while I fold the laundry on Sunday mornings. He said, I will miss you. My wife will miss my 30-minute contribution to housework. Uh, Richard Irve, uh, Irve of Saudi Arabia. He listened to us in Saudi Arabia, 2010 and 2011. And the Arabic translation was, was excellent, by the way. The well, excellent, you know, excellent. Well, you know what? When he was in the, in the United Arab Emirates, he said, does this podcast make me look fatwa? I don't know. He didn't really say that, but I was a joke I've been dying to say for, for weeks now. <laughs> it's been dying with you. <laughs> Peter Doralt of Paris, France, he says, I was strolling from London's Green Park towards Buckingham Palace on Monday morning. I was dismayed. It must have shown on my face. People were staring, perhaps wondering, has the guy with the headphones just learned something about the royal baby? Alas, no. What I heard was far more momentous. 
Ron Elving announcing the penultimate episode of It's All Politics. I so hoped he was joking. Anna Baldwin of Orly, Montana. That's a beaut. I haven't said that in a while. In like a it's near five beaut. minutes. Anyway, she writes, My nine-year-old son and I listen every week on our way to town for shopping. When we heard today that this was the penultimate podcast and he learned the meaning of that word, he summed it up for both of us. Well, that sucks. Nine-year-old. Excellent. Excellent. We have found our audience. All right. But the favorite moment, the favorite moment. Many of our listeners... They did. ...nominated a favorite moment. And one that was close to my personal heart was the one where Ron got one right. I still remember listening to you in awe when you made that bold prediction. I believe, in fact, I'm going to go out on another limb here and say that before we do another podcast, Rick Santorum will have officially ended his campaign. Wow. I believe he will do it on Monday, the day after Easter, wow. April 9th, or at the latest, perhaps April 10th on Tuesday. And here's why. Uh, he has taken his campaign. And April 10th was the day. This won the Blind Squirrel Award for 2012. Even a blind squirrel will find a nut once in a while. But the absolute winner of favorite moment in all seven years of podcasts, hands down, no question, walk away, was this one. You know, Ray LaHood, by the way, represents a part of Illinois that's very close to the part of Illinois around Springfield that uh, Abraham Lincoln represented in Congress back in the 1850s. That's right. And we just learned this week, by the way, something interesting about Abraham Lincoln's face. He's on the $5 bill? No, no, his face. He, he, he was asymmetrical. He didn't like Jews? Actually, that's not true because he, he was shot in the temple. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's a rare moment when, when, when one joke can combine bad taste <laughs> with, with, with religious insensitivity insensitivity to gun violence, really rude attitude towards one of our great presidents, all in one I th cheap I think joke. that's what makes our podcast so special. For all the reactions and, and the, the, the tributes I've gotten, cherishing the seven years you and I have done the podcast together, I wish the listener could know how much fun it's been to do what we do. First of all, I'm going to miss this tremendously. Um, I, you know, Heidi Glenn, who puts up our podcast every week uh, on, on the on the internets, it's not going to be up after this week, and I, it, it breaks my heart, but I, uh, I am so proud of every episode we've done. We celebrated our 300th podcast last year. We got a lot of wonderful tributes from around the world then, and the, the emails that have come in this week from people knowing it's about to end has just been truly, truly heartening, and uh, I appreciate it more than anyone will ever know. And Ken, all I can say is I can't imagine doing it with anyone but you and I wouldn't have missed it for the world and that's it for this week's political podcast you can follow NPR's political coverage at npr.org slash politics I'm Ron Elving and I'm Ken Rudin the podcast as always is produced by Bracton Booker and edited by Kathy Shaw thanks for joining us for It's All Politics from NPR it's been a great ride Ron thanks Ken thanks Sweet, sleepy warmth of summer nights Gazing at the distant lights in the starry sky
Summer days again. 